Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and I'm with Gilbert Gottfried on the Amazing Colossal Podcast. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is an occasional actor, a designer, a gorilla expert, a self-described monster maker, an Emmy winner, and a seven-time Academy Award winner, and arguably the most admired and celebrated makeup and special effects artist in the history of cinema. His screen credits and achievements and contributions to the art form would take an entire show to list. So here are just a few. The Exorcist, It's Alive, King Kong, Live and Let Die, Star Wars, An American Werewolf in London, Harry and the Hendersons, Ed Wood, Men in Black, Coming to America, Gremlins 2, Gorillas in the Mist, The Nutty Professor, Planet of the Apes, Hellboy, The Wolfman, and Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He even worked on a movie we love to talk about on this show, The Thing with Two Heads. In a career that started way back in the late 1960s, he's worked side-by-side with some of the industry's most creative and accomplished filmmakers, including... George Lucas, Tim Burton, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, John Carpenter, John Landis, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro. He's going to get you for not pronouncing his name. (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola, David Cronenberg, and Peter Jackson, as well as our one-time podcast guests, Joe Dante and Larry Cohen. And 
his late men, men and his late mentor, the legendary makeup artist Dick Smith. His brand new book, Rick Baker Metamorphosis, is an elaborate, full color, two volume, 700 page extravaganza highlighting his 40 plus year journey through Hollywood. Frank and I were lucky enough to get a couple of copies and our jaws are still hanging open. We're thrilled and excited to welcome to the show an artist of unique vision and talents and a fellow monster kid that we've wanted on this show from the very beginning, the ingenious Rick Baker. Boy, I I, uh, I think I'm too good to be on this show after hearing that interview. <laughs> well, who isn't? <laughs> yeah. Now, and now we've had similar childhoods because I think we were both pathetic kids. Yeah. Who, <laughs> That's for sure. Who <laughs> fell in love early on with monsters, whether classic Universal or beneath the monogram. <laughs> and and I think we both would run to the candy store whenever the latest issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland came out. Yeah, I had a hard time finding Famous Monsters. I don't know how, how it was with you, but for me, it was really hard to find. Really? Yeah, I... My first, the first one I found, you know, I, w- I was like a latchkey kid. My, both my parents worked and, and we had no daycare, you know, so my mom would take me to the supermarket and I always hated doing that. But I'd look through the magazines and one day there was a, issue number three of Famous Monsters and it, and it was like, this has monsters on it. You yes. Know, what is this? And, <laughs> and, and I got so excited, but my mom wouldn't let me buy, but I think it's because she didn't really have the 35 cents. But every time after that, when she wanted me to go to the supermarket, I gladly went because I, I kept my allowance and you know had 35 cents so I could find one. But it wasn't until issue number six that another one came out uh, in that market. So, I, But yeah, I, Famous Monsters is, is the responsibility uh, for uh, my crazy life, you know. I I remember Famous Monsters. There was like about sixty percent bullshit, because <laughs> they would they would have like it was very popular to have like about five articles in it that said uh, reprinted by popular demand. Which <laughs> well, it, when did you start? What what was the first one you got? Oh, I forget which one. I remember uh, my sister Arlene wanted me to go somewhere with her, and I kept saying no, and she said, I'll buy you a monster magazine. And then when I got that, I was hooked. Your first issue was a bribe. (laughs) Yes, yes. Were were you Monster Times guys as well, Rick, or just... Uh, just I, I had a couple issues of that, but I was it was mostly I mean it was famous monsters, uh, you know, yeah, mad monsters, horror monsters, Castle of Frankenstein, uh, those were the big ones. Uh, then you know l- later it was like Sin Fantastique and Fangoria. Sure, and sure. Yeah. And yeah. and I I remember too when I was a kid in in famous monsters it said that Lon Chaney Jr. wasn't feeling well. And they gave an address, and I sent the Get Well card, and I got back. I have it in a frame in my house, like this 
postcard of the Wolfman, and it's signed Lon Chaney. That's pretty cool. I don't, you know, the funny thing is, I rarely read Famous Monsters. I looked at the pictures more than anything else. I'm, I'm a bit dyslexic. I think, you know, I, I, I have a real hard time reading, and you know, there was Forey had all the stupid puns and stuff. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> and, yes. Yeah, you know. uh, but I mean, I read the articles, like you know, the, Dick Smith did a number of articles on how he did things, and I read those, and you know, looked at the pictures with the magnifying glass to try to see what it said on the jars and things like that, because you know, it was a time the information wasn't out there, and Famous Monsters was a film magazine that you know let me know that people did this and and people did it for a living, and it's, that's you know, I kind of. Prior to that, I kept saying I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, wow. Uh, it's in the book. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah Your parents were so to... proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, both my parents, you know, my dad was a high school dropout because he had to go work to help support his family. And my mom went to high school only. But, you know, they liked the idea that I was going to be like a professional and go to college and stuff. So I had the most amazing parents. I mean, they, they were very supportive and... Uh, positive thinkers. And, and, you know, when I went to my mom and told her that I didn't want to be a doctor anymore, she, uh, you know, didn't hit me and send me to my room <laughs> you know, when, I, when I told her I wanted to make monsters instead. You know, I mean, that I'm sure that was quite a shock. I mean, going from a doctor to a guy who was going to make monsters for movies. Well, didn't know? she say that's not a career? That's not a real job? Yeah, yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not a real job. And I go, yes, it is. I, I read about it in Famous Monsters. Jack Pierce, you know, Jack Pierce did it. You know, these people who were in total John Chambers, you know. And, and uh, you know, they were, they were incredibly supportive. And my dad was also a very creative person, and it was kind of discouraging in his lifetime and I benefited from that when he saw the creativity in what I was doing. Um, That's sweet. And he was really my first teacher. I mean, he knew how to paint. He knew a little bit about sculpting. Wow. And and he's a horror... Both my parents like horror movies. You know, I mean, I, I, I call them monster movies. I'm not a slasher movie fan. You know, I like the more sympathetic, you know, Frankenstein, Hunchback of Notre Dame, those kind of things, you know, before it was... Movies are all about the most graphic ways you can kill a teenager, you know. And also in my living room, I have the Frankenstein poster from Famous Monsters. Yeah. And the, the six foot Frankenstein? Yes, oh, yeah, yes, the Jack yes. Davis? Did you see the one? No, that not I, uh, the Jack uh, Davis, the other oh, no. one. Oh, the, the other one. Serious. I know when you talk about Yeah, yes. Yeah, I had that one too. Yeah, I, had, I didn't have the Jack Davis one, and I'm sorry I didn't because I did recently, uh, you know, as, as Frank, as you mentioned, I'm retired, but mm -hmm. I. Everybody always says on my Instagram, because uh, I post stuff on Instagram, that, you know, you're the busiest retired guy in the world, because I make stuff every day. I still work, you know, and one of the reasons I retired is so I could make the things I want to make without all the interference from other people. Well, know? that's good to hear. And, and, yeah. and I have, from the back of Famous Monsters, they had, you know, it was a drawing that they mm -hmm. showed, and it was like that you could order a Herman... The Asiatic insect. <laughs> hey. Yes, well, you brought it with Kirk Hammett. And, yeah. and this is like in the drawing, you see this giant monster jump out yeah. of a box with fangs and, and long nails and hair and everyone screaming and running away. And then I got the thing. It's about the si size of a, a matchbox. Uh -huh. And inside there's a stick with some fuzz glued on and, and a rubber band for antennas. It was the worst piece of shit in the world. 
I well, still you know, have it. <laughs> yeah. Sylvia's well, laughing yeah, so, in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Captain Company, which was the, the mail order part in the famous monsters, were notorious for. I mean, you're lucky you got it. I, yeah. I actually <laughs> got it. I, I, I ordered like a two year subscription, which I had to save my money for the longest time. And it was, if you got this two-year subscription, you were supposed to get a copy of Brave Ghouls magazine, which had a picture of Charlie Gamora uh, from The Monster and the Girl, a really cool ape suit that he made. So I sent off for this, never got it. I, you know, I, I, my mom used to work in a bank, so she got me a certified check when I sent the money out. And so I sent a copy of it. I said, you never sent me this. I want my magazine. You know, I want my Brave Ghoul magazine. <laughs> and I never, I, they have sent me a uh, one issue, which was an issue I already bought, and that was all I ever got. You know, I mean, Jim Warren was kind of notorious for. Oh, he's James famous. I think he's still yes. around. He's still around. I think. Yeah, yeah. He probably still. Uh, you know, where's my uh, Brave Gold magazine, Jim? <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. A- and I remember. I don't know if it was Captain Company, and I'm sure you remember this: that you could order a pet monkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and I I heard with that it was a completely illegal operation. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be sending live animals in the mail, and when they'd get these monkeys, they'd either be dead or dying. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Are you sure they were alive? Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think a few kids were opened a package and found a dead monkey. <laughs> we we had your friend Joe Dante on the show, Rick, and we uh-huh. we brought that up with him. He disputed Gilbert. He said, "I I can't believe that ever happened or that ever existed." So we did a I, deep I, research dive into it. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing that ad. Yeah. It was like a little squirrel monkey in the correct. Picture, yes, correct. In yes. someone's yeah. hand, the palm yeah. of someone's hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or or in a teacup they'd have yeah. it. That was, yeah. but and it was it was hard. It, yeah, it was diseased and dying. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Here's something in the book that Gilbert w- would relate to too. Uh, uh, Rick is that we, you were talking about how in those days, obviously no VCRs. If there was something on that you wanted to watch, you had to be there. We talk about this a lot on the show. And your your parents were sports. Very touching. Your your parents were sports fans, but you would tell them you would time when Mighty Joe Young in your head. There was there was a moment where they had to change the channel so you could watch Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, well, it, you know, like you said, no VCR, and and you know those movies. You know, I, I lived for those movies when they were on television. You know, and and the we used to have a thing called the Million Dollar Movie. I don't yes. know if they had that in yeah, New York. Sure. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Know, they, they sh- the same movie every night all week, and dun, so I think we had a different song actually, but uh, the. Uh, you know, I would time where the cool scenes were. I remember, you know, uh, Caltiki, the immortal monster. There's a scene where, you know, a diver goes in the water and comes up and, and you know, you know, it was just like a skull in a, in a, a diving mask, you know, but it was the cool scene in the movie that you wait for. You know? Caltiki, so. the immortal monster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you used and, to scan TV listings like Gilbert did. Yes. Oh, yeah. And my, oh, the, the worst moment of my childhood <laughs> And there were many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was I was they would have every afternoon Route 66. And I had read there was an episode called Owlet's Wing and Lizard's Poor that had Peter Laurie, Boris Karloff, and Lon Cheney Jr. Yeah. And I would look out for it every day. The one day I didn't look out for it. I found out it aired that day. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, people, I say this to my kids now, my daughters, you know, that 
it was a different, different world. You know, we had a sure. television and there were a few channels and I would scour the TV guide trying to find these things. And if you didn't watch it when it was on, you didn't see it until it was on again a year from now or whatever, you know. So it's not instant gratification like it is now. You know? But it was, it was the sympathetic, it was, it was Frankenstein that lured you in, you, you, the Universal Monsters in particular yeah, is what I mean, touched the, you? The Universal Monsters still. I mean, I... I I watch them, you know, if I flip through the TV when I, you know, I'm eating my lunch or something and there's a, a Universal Monster movie on, I'll watch it. You, you know, gotta I've watch it. Them. I, have, I have every copy of the, D, you know, Laserdisc, you know, uh, VHS, you know, the uh, Blu-ray, you know, but you, and I still watch it. And, and, and Sven Gulli, you know. I, yes, I, I, yeah, Sven Gulli runs them. I've been on Sven Gulli I know, I saw you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, I, I, I find it so exciting that there's a, still a horror show host. And I did, as part of this book promotion thing, um, which I appreciate all the great things you said about the book. Did you guys actually get hard copies or PDFs? Uh, this this is so weird because I was going to be taking a long plane trip, uh-huh. and I said to my co-host Frank, I said, "Oh, you know, oh, that'll be good. I'll have something to read on the plane." And he said, "Are you out of your mind?" <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, "How how fucking heavy can a book be?" And I received it, and it was like a refrigerator. <laughs> 17, yeah. 17 pounds, it says right on the box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. not something you want to carry around with you. You know, when I, when I did Comic-Con, you know, I, I, I was not that excited. I don't like to travel that much. And, and uh, you know, I wasn't, wasn't all that excited. And then when I found out Sven Gulli was going to be there, I went, okay, I'm going. And, and that was the highlight. You know, uh, there's uh, pictures of me with Sven Gulli and, and my family all said, we've never seen you smiling so big. <laughs> That's nice. Oh, and did you used to get, in New York, we had Zachary. Uh huh. I I only knew Zachary from the famous monsters. I we didn't get him in in California. Or at least I'd never saw him. So. But yeah, I knew who he was for sure. Yeah. I only got the PDF so far. Chris is working on it to, okay. to answer your question. But even in even in PDF form, it's 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 a massive. I mean, what an undertaking. Well, it's my life, you know. And I'm almost sixty nine years old now, and I've been doing stuff since I was ten. You know, yeah. and and I'm kind of a hoarder in that I saved the things that I do and. And also lots of other stuff that my wife always gives me a hard time about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, for our listeners, but, Sylvia, uh, Rick's wife, is sitting in the, in the corner, and she's she's nodding. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she just put her hand against her mouth. To, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> One of those wives who understands. Like, obviously, Gilbert's wife also is accepting of the fact that they've got a 30-foot Frankenstein poster in their living room. <laughs> <laughs> so Sylvia is obviously well, a sim- she's simpatico. Well, when we first started living together, I mean, we've been married now for what is it, almost thirty-five years, I guess. But we lived together for a while first, and and I, uh, the house we we moved into together, uh, the living room was full of monsters and skeletons and and all this kind of stuff. And my wife is very feminine, and she has a lot of girlfriends, and she'd have tea parties, and they would be in the living room, you know, drinking tea all dressed like nice women and with, you know, skeletons and mummies and monsters all around. You know, I always just thought that was really funny. Oh, and, and this is how much of a, a, a fan I am and, and a crazy person. <laughs> uh, when my son was born, uh, we decided he'd need, uh, my wife said he'll need an A name as a middle name. 
And I was insisting, I really wanted his middle name to be Alucard. (laughs) (laughs) Which, uh, for anyone who doesn't know it, and shame on you if you don't, in Son of Frankenstein, he spelled Dracula backwards, and it's Alucard. And in... in, uh Dracula in 1972 AD or whatever, the, the AD 1973 or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Alucard, uh, Peter Cushing does the same thing, but he draws a line from, you know, he writes Dracula and he writes Alucard underneath. And he draws a line from the D in the front of Dracula to the D at the end of Alucard and, that, and figures it out. You that's, know. that's if the audience are a bunch of fucking idiots. <laughs> that <laughs> no. can't be just told. No, it's backwards. Yeah. Hold it in yeah. front of a mirror. <laughs> now, now that you brought those names up, Rick, did you meet those guys in your travels? You must have met Cushing and 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 Lee. And, and I never, I never met Cushing. I did meet Lee, Christopher Lee, because he's in Gremlins too. Right, right, and, of course. And you know, we were really excited about that. You know, and he was a great guy. And we actually, uh, we had when I opened my big studio, which is now closed, but uh, we had a giant Halloween party, and it was really Hollywood throws a Halloween party, and. It was, you know, decorated to the max, and and Christopher Lee came, you know, and the thing was, you had to come in costume. It was, you know, for somebody like me, you know, it was really important. Christopher Lee came as Christopher Lee, and I was like, okay. And Martin Lando came as Martin Lando, but I, I, I forgave him for that. <laughs> and and you had the chance, and it was a great makeup job, of making Martin Landau into Bela Lugosi. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I'm a, a Tim Burton fan, first of all, and a, and a Bela Lugosi fan, and, and mm-hmm. an Ed Wood fan. You know, mm-hmm. when, I heard, when I heard that movie was being made, I, I contacted Tim. I had met Tim uh, previously when he just was right out of uh, Cal Arts, uh, Tim and Rick Heinrichs both, and uh, we talked a number of times about different films that never happened. Uh, but when I, I saw this, someone showed me the, 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 an article in the trades that they were doing this, so I contacted Tim, and I just said, I have to do this, I'll do it for free, you know, and... He pretty much took me up on that. The unfortunate <laughs> thing was, I mean, I, yeah, but I mean, I got an Oscar. There was so a that payoff. Was fine, you yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, and I, I was doing another movie at the time, which I usually don't like to do two things at once, but I had to do this. So uh, V V Neil applied the makeup on a daily basis. I made the appliances, did the initial tests, and, and worked it out. But it was a fun, a fun project. And I wish I was there the whole time. I really wanted to be there when they were filming the Bride of the Monster stuff and that cheesy set. You know. <laughs> Weren't you hoping yeah. to do some Tor Johnson makeup too? I was, you yeah. know. I, I I said, "What about Tor? What about Tor?" And then they got this guy. What was his name? George the Animal Steel. Oh yeah, the wrestler. Kind of looked like Tor, you know. And it was close enough, you know. We we did lenses for him, but uh, yeah, it was it was. I think it's Tim's best movie, and it's the uh, least. it's wonderful. Well, we're friends yes. with Scott and Larry too. Oh, and they, they are just amazing. Yeah, really outdid themselves. Scott and Larry yeah. wrote the Problem Child movies. Huh. There you go. So, well, another, another <laughs> I didn't connection. know that, but but when I read the script, I mean, I was blown away, and that's when I mean, I also felt you know it, it's tempting to put too much on somebody, you know. Uh, and Martin's face was wrong in so many ways. I mean, uh, Lugosi had a very round face, and Martin had a little a rectangular, long rectangular kind of face, and Martin has big, full lips, and and Bella had you know basically no upper lip, you know, and. Uh, I, w- I was tempted to add stuff to the sides of his face, but when I read the script and I just, you know, it's, he has to be real, you know, and I wanted really, it's, it's a less is more. I just really want to get the essence of Lugosi 
and not cover up too much of the actor, you know. And I, I think it worked out pretty well. Worked out for him as well as you. Yeah, it did. yeah. He owes me. Yeah, obviously. yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, it's 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 funny. I always remember that uh, Martin Landau said he won the award that was supposed to go to Bela Lugosi. <laughs> well, that was nice of him. Yeah. Yeah, and in your speech, you thank Jack Pierce. Well, you know, I mean, he was my, you know, Jack Pierce and Lon Chaney were the first inspirations, you know, and then, then there was the, the the Dick Smith connection, which was the, you know, the amazing thing that really happened to me is to be able to meet Dick, you know, and he, his work was just above anybody else's. I mean, I, you know, the, this again, before the internet, you know, I went to the library you know, sure. to find information and, and there was a book on stage makeup that had some, some pictures of Dick Smith stuff. And then I eventually found, they ordered for me a book called The Technique of Film and Television Makeup. And they have, there were pictures in there that I just went, wow, this looks so real. And it was like Dick Smith. And then I turned the other pages, and there's another one. This one looks real, and that was Dick Smith. So I became a major Dick Smith fan. And Dick Smith, among a million other films, did The Godfather and The Exorcist. And when you see The Exorcist, the audience goes, oh, yeah, Linda Blair and the monster makeup. And what... People don't realize this. Max von Sydow was like 40 when he did that. And you accept the fact that he's an old man in the movie. Right. And he looks very much like that now. Have you seen yeah. him? Yeah. Yeah. Now, he, now he looks like him. Yeah. And, well, I was going to mention that when you mentioned The Exorcist is one of my movies. It's really a Dick Smith movie. I just was an assistant to Dick. You know, well, we just film, met but, you worked on it. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah it yeah, counts yeah. as a credit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but the and, stuff... Go ahead, Gil. Oh, no, I was going to say, another movie you should have your name added to, if it's not added already, uh-huh. that you're responsible for the makeup in, uh, aside from doing the great makeup job in American Werewolf, uh, The Howling was a, uh, I, was a lot of your makeup ideas. Yeah, I mean, I do. I have a credit on there. It's a it's, oh, you do. It's, yeah, Thank makeup you. consultant. Yeah. Uh, well, my protege Rob Botine uh, did that film. He Rob came to me as a thirteen year old kid who never did makeup and and wanted to learn. And he could draw really well. And and I kind of took him under my wing. I wanted to be like Dick Smith. And uh, I, uh, you know, taught him too well because he showed me up in the thing. <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> when he did John Carpenter's The Thing, he just like you know showed everybody up with that stuff. But yeah, I uh, you know John had written American Werewolf when we did Schlock, which was John's first film, my second. And, uh, you know, he wrote it, I think, when he was 20 or, or something. And, and he told me the whole story. And, you know, he said, I want to do this transformation in a way, you know, it doesn't make sense to me that, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't make sense to me that if your body was going through this metamorphosis that you would sit in a chair and be perfectly still until you change. I want to, I want to see the pain. You know, I want to, I want to, also, I don't. It, it's not a horror movie in that it takes place in a real, a real apartment and real no horror movie lighting. And you know, how would you do it? And it's like I don't know, but I, I would sure love to have the opportunity. You know, because we both love those kind of films. You know, especially the transformations. And you know, he said, "Well, it's going to be my next movie, so start thinking about it." Well, you know, Schlock wasn't a big hit. You know, and it wasn't until <laughs> after Animal House that John actually got the money to do this movie. But Prior to him getting the money, I got a call from Joe, Joe Dante about the howling. Uh, Joe Dante, Mike Finnell, and said, we want to do this werewolf movie, and would you be interested? And I said, yeah, well, now it's my opportunity to show off for this transformation that I thought of. And as the way things work, you know, like, a, I say two weeks later, and Joe, I think, says it's even was less time than that. I get a call from John going, 
good news. We're doing American Werewolf. And it's like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> you know so I, when I told John, you know, he was calling me all kinds of names. And, all, you know, he goes, how could you do this to me? It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll make it better. So, I, you know, uh, I had already recommended Rob to, uh, to Joe to do some piranhas for uh, Piranha. And <laughs> so they knew him. And, uh, you know, so I said, I'll consult. And we discussed it. And Rob took it in his own direction. And he added a lot to it. You know, I mean, the two transformations, do, though we use similar techniques, they're definitely very different. You know? And to show how good your makeup is... Uh, whereas most movies, they go in for this bullshit of like, it's at night during a rainstorm, a thunderstorm, or they smash a light and the light is like flickering. And But that American Werewolf is in a brightly lit room. Yeah, and I, I wasn't real excited about that. You know? <laughs> you know, I said, you know, because these things, you know, you know, it's nice to have a little help. You know, and, and, you know a little shadow here and there helps. You know, and um, and you know, the thing was too. I mean, again, it was a different time. Now there's so many people that do do makeup effects, and and you know, there's specialized guys who are mold makers, or guys who are mechanics, or you know, foam rubber guys. Back then, it was a different deal, and my crew on American Werewolf were kids, and I mean, people that sent me fan mail. I brought one kid out from Texas to work on it, and another kid from Connecticut. They're like 18 years old, you know, and I was 30 at the time, and 30 with, you know, a, a handful of 18-year-olds who had never worked on movies before, and, and we managed to do something that still looks pretty good. I mean, I cringe when I see the transformation now, because there's so many things that I think I would could do so much better, you know, but... But still not bad for, for however many years ago it was before most of the people listening to this were probably born. <laughs> what did you say to David Naughton when he walked in? You said, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, that's what he says all the time. I think, I think, I mean, it, no, it does sound like something I would say because it is tough. You know, yes. I mean, he had, a, he had a tough job. I mean, we, and especially because, you know, we were making it up as we went along. I mean, people hadn't done this before. And, 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 and like I said, my crew was kind of inexperienced and, I, you know, on one of the American Werewolf uh, DVDs, they had some behind-the-scenes footage of us taking a cast of David, and we can't get his hand out of the mold and some stuff. And it was like, I cringed when I saw that stuff, you know. Well, Griffin Griffin was here, and he's still traumatized. Uh, Yeah, he was very traumatized the first time I made him up. And, uh, I mean, he was great. He was really fun to work with and, and all, but... The very first time I made him up as Jack, the torn up, it was yeah. neck torn out. You know, he was just sinking down in the makeup chair and just looking sadder and sadder. And I eventually said, Griffin, what's the matter? You know, and he goes, well, look at me. And I go, yeah. And he goes, I mean, I look horrible. Nobody's going to look at me. This is my big break, you know. And it was like, did you read the script? Yes. And, and said, Does, doesn't it say that your you know your throat's torn out and half your face is missing? Yes. And he goes, but I didn't visualize it that way. And it's like, well, I did. <laughs> you know, and and uh, so you know, Landis was already in London scouting locations, so I had to call John and say, you know, you got to talk to Griffin because he's really upset. And, um, and but I took that opportunity. I figured since he's so upset, anyways, uh, because you know it was progressive de- degeneration. You know, he got killed by the werewolf. Every yes. time you see him, he's he's more and more skeletal. And at the end, in the porno theater, he's basically like a talking skeleton. So the only way, because makeup is an additive process, you it's really hard to subtract from somebody's face. And I wanted him to look very skeletal, so I decided I was going to make Jack Stage Three a puppet. So I, I told the already upset Griffin. 
<laughs> well, you know, the, you know the, the third stage, you know, you're going to be a puppet, you know. It's like, what? You know? And, and I said, but, but I want you to operate the job because you can do the lip sync at the same time, you know, and we showed him how to do it. And he was great at it, actually. So. He, he said, it's a credit to your makeup because he told us he was traumatized, not only by the experience of going through it, but remember what he told us, Gilbert? Yes. That seeing himself... That walking around looking like that, he he felt like, well, this is what I'm going to be like when I'm dead. This is what I'm going to look like. I mean, it it actually, in a strange way, put him in touch with his own mortality. And well, was- it is a it is a weird thing too, you know. And and again, I, I, that's something I think that's amazing about makeup. Um, when you look through your eyes at the reflection in the mirror, but the face that you're used to seeing isn't there anymore. That's a different face. It it you have. It's it just gives you this weird feeling, you know. Your it's your eyes, but that face looking back at you is different. And that's part. I was painfully shy as a kid. I'm an only child. I pretty much stayed in my bedroom and made monsters, you know. Uh, <laughs> had, had no social skills whatsoever, you know. And and I couldn't talk to an adult. Um, and when the first time I made myself up, and this was just grease paint, you know, white and black grease paint smeared on my face. I could do things that I couldn't do as the little Ricky Baker. I mean, it was uh, that face in the mirror wasn't mine anymore, and it showed me the power of makeup. And I think that's the a real shame, uh, though. A lot of great makeups are being done now, but they're doing a lot of stuff CG as well. I don't think you know. I, I think it's great when you when you walk into a set and you see where you are, and it's amazing. Part you know, of the magic. You know, where you are. Yeah, yeah. And, and as opposed to walking into a green a green screen, you know, or having motion capture dots on you, and you don't really know what they're going to be doing with your face, but when you look through your eyes and you see that face and you see what what, what you can do with it, you know it's it's an amazing feeling and, and, and a cool experience. Mind you, the process is is tedious. <laughs> there are some stories in the book of of actors uh, losing perhaps losing patience is one way to say it with the mm. process. There's the Nicholson stuff. There's the the Tommy Lee Jones stuff. I mean, some with some people you had your hands full. Well, you know, actors are actors. I, I, I guess I can say this because, you know, I've done some acting. It's kind of an insult to real actors to, to call myself an actor. You know? <laughs> but uh, I, I make faces. You know, <laughs> uh, you know it's, it's a tough process to go through on a daily basis, you know. And, you know, the normal film day is, is a 12-hour day. If you, you know, some of these makeups I do are three and a half hours on an average. Right. So you add that to the 12 hour day and then an hour removal time. And, and I'm not really good at math, but it's, it's a long day, you know, and I've spent my career doing these days, you know, and, and in the pre-production time too, you know, when I started out, especially in the low budget independent films, you had very little time to do the work. So it was just, you work as many hours a day as you can and, and, uh, it's what my life has been, and it's still do it. Like I said, in my retirement, I, I still pretty much do. I, I used to say I do twelve hour days. Now it's more like ten. I slowed down a little bit, you know. But, but it's how I have fun. I make stuff, and and this is how I entertain myself and how I have a good time. You know? And I think it was it. Roger Ebert said that a stop motion photography looks phony but feels real, and that. Uh, computerization looks real but feels phony. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's hard to, you know. I I actually uh, embrace the technology. You know, people always kind of try to pit the rubber guys against the digital guys, and and especially when the digital stuff first started happening, we went from being the you know the effects experts to the dinosaurs instantly. You know, and and I was saying at the time, you know, I'm sorry, but. I don't think this stuff looks that good, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look at a '90s uh, uh, 
computer effect. It looks like a bad, uh, you know, a game that somebody's playing. Yeah. You know, uh, you look at American Werewolf or Harry and the Hendersons. It still looks pretty good. You know, so, but they, you know, it's changed. And I, I, I was hoping it would be more of a marriage of the two techniques, which hasn't happened as much as I wish it would have. You know, but, did it necessitate your retirement a little bit, Rick? The 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 the, the move toward well, it computers. I mean, it, it, it helped some. I mean, I know I did an interview right when I retired for uh, uh, public radio, and they kind of uh, used the soundbite that it was computer skilled, you know, the makeup of business kind of thing. And that was one of the things, but not really. I mean, I, I embraced the technology because, again, I learned from Jack Pierce. You know, Jack Pierce was, you know, did Frankenstein's Monster, sure. Wolfman, Dracula, the, all the classic Universal movies. In the 40s, the new regime came in and fired him because he was using out-of-the-kit makeup techniques, which other people were using rubber appliances, uh, 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 you know, the Hunchback in Notre Dame, the Charles Lawton was foam rubber in 1939. The Wizard of Oz was foam rubber. Jack was still using, you know, cotton and collodion and stuff. And I, 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 I made a note of that and go, I'm not going to let this happen to me. And plus, I like learning and playing with new toys, you know, and finding mm-hmm. new stuff. So, so I do a lot of stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll, I do some computer animation for fun and, and I love working digitally. I mean, when I first got a computer and this was in the late eighties um, to we, I mean, we had a computer in the office, but I, I went in and said, you know, isn't this, this is so much better than typing on a typewriter where you can actually, you know, you don't have to white out stuff and you can, it, you know, you can change things around and cut and paste. And so I just wish you could do that with a drawing. And somebody says, I think there's a program that you can do that. And, and I started with like, uh, it was actually a, a program that was called photo Mac, I think. And then someone said, Photoshop is better. You should get that. And it was 1.0. And, Drawing digitally, it took some getting used to, but the fact that I, I call it no fear painting. I mean, when when you paint something, you know, a lot of times I'll have an idea in my head and, and it's pretty clear in my head and I start to paint it and the painting isn't exactly what I'm seeing in my head, but the painting itself is good. Then it's like, do I change the painting and risk screwing it up or and but make it look more like what I want or do I not do another painting? What do I do? And you know, digitally now you just save it and you can do another mm-hmm. one. And then, and you know, and you, the problem is you end up with so many. You know, I mean, the Wolfman we had like thousands of designs, and and they kept saying, you know, do one in between this one and that one. And it got so close, I said, there isn't an in between. These guys look exactly the same. You know, just pick something. You know, so, uh, but it's it's uh, I found it very freeing, and I, I found it design wise. I would try things that I would never try with a pencil or paper or paint and brush. You know? And so, and I mean, I, I love the technology. I I think like with Jack Pierce, it's like the next regime of makeup were the Westmores. Well, the Westmores came in. Yeah, uh, I mean the Westmores were the, uh, every makeup department. Uh, Westmore was the head of at one point. You know, now Paramount, MGM, Universal. Yeah, Bud Westmore. Bud was more of a department head. Uh, he wasn't so much hands-on. Uh, he hired people to do this stuff. You know, like, for example, the Creature from Black Lagoon, you know, was sculpted by Chris Mueller um, and designed by uh, Millicent Patrick. Uh, um, and, but there's pictures of Bud Westmore posing with a really in- inappropriate sculpting tool or, or there's one picture of him holding a paintbrush the wrong way around <laughs> against something. <you> know? <laughs> uh, but from what I heard, uh, you know, he would, when the publicity people would come to take pictures, he would give everybody the afternoon off and then he would go up in the lab and pose with, with one of the sculptures that, that he didn't do, you know. So. And someone told me recently that Millicent Patrick, who designed the creature, 
Uh, Westmore fired her when people started to find out she designed the creature. Well, the, there was, was a, a whole book pub- about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the whole publicity thing around the creature was kind of the Beauty and the Beast thing. Some publicists found out that this she was an attractive woman designed this monster and they thought it would be a great ad you know a great way to promote the movie and and bud was furious you know i mean then there was a lot of egos involved i like pierce's uh, white zombie makeup which not a lot of people talk about yeah 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 it's uh, i mean he he did some amazing stuff and again i mean you know uh, uh, lon chaney i mean this you know i think some of his makeups have never been topped and and what i find interesting you know because the techniques he had and the materials he had were limiting and but in many cases that limitation i think was what made the makeup work so well you know it's not for example phantom of the opera on lon chaney you know how he had his nose pulled up and and all that stuff i mean it looks great and it's he makes horrifying faces in the 50s they made uh the story of Lon Chaney's life, A Man of a Thousand Faces, where James Cagney played yes, Lon Chaney, yeah, and, yeah. and the Westmores did the makeup, and it was with the new material, foam rubber, and that Phantom was, you know, I thought it was ridiculous. Oh, you know? it, <laughs> yeah, because Cagney, first of all, had the wrong face for oh, Lon definitely Chaney's. the wrong face. Oh, yeah. And Cagney had that, like, big pug nose, and for that to look like the Phantom... Yeah. And and they didn't like whereas Cheney actually pulled his nose up, uh, Cagney was wearing a big rubber appliance that looked yeah. like a clown nose. <laughs> yeah, it was a whole big giant foam rubber mask. Yeah, I know. And it's and I mean, you know, in the defense of the makeup department, he definitely had the wrong face. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I've talked to him about it. I, when I first uh, saw Breaking Bad, I said, you know. Brian Cranston would make a great Lon Chaney. Someone should do Ooh. Man of a Thousand oh. Faces with Brian Cranston playing the <laughs> part. It's intriguing. And we went to we went to uh, uh, Comic Con and, and went to a Breaking Bad panel and went back and, and met Vince and, and and Brian Cranston. And I said I told him this, you know, and and we actually had them over for dinner. And he was really, you know, he was thinking, yeah, that would be kind of cool to play the world's greatest actor, you know. And he would be great for it, even though, I mean, he's now, I mean, Cheney wasn't that old when he died, but he looked old, you know. I mean, right. You know, the smoking and the drinking and all that stuff kind of. I hope that happens. Up. And Man of a Thousand Faces is one of those pictures. I always loved watching it as a movie, but mm-hmm. it's everything is false about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on his deathbed, uh, yes. Cheney gets his makeup kit and writes Junior on it. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, that yeah. was yeah. complete yeah. bullshit. Like Pride of the Yankees. That's, yeah. that's, yes. about how truth, that's about how truthful it is. Yeah, but it's kind of, you know, it's a movie, you know. It's like, I know that, you know, when we did Ed Wood, uh, Bela Lugosi Jr. was like really upset, you know. He was like, you know, this is not really the way it worked, you know. And, and, you know, my dad had big dogs, you know. He didn't have little dogs, you know, and stuff like this, you know. And, I mean, I wouldn't want to see a movie that someone made about my dad and just made up a bunch of Of course. Shit, you know? We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On the subject of Bela, please tell us you love the black cat as much as we do. Because we'd love to talk about that one. You know, I just watched some of it the other day. It was on uh, Turner Classic Movies. Oh, yeah. They pulled it out. Yeah. Uh, I do, but I still, you know, I'm a monster geek. You know, I mean, there's not like a monster. I than, see. You know, you know, a uh, makeup so much. You know, I mean, there is the kind of interesting hairstyle on 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 Boris. And sure, one, he know. he looked like like he was David Bowie <laughs> or something. <laughs> Early David Bowie. And <laughs> and it was the thing with the black cat is most of those movies took place in old haunted houses or laboratories, and there everything was Art Deco. There's yeah, even cool. a digital cool. clock in it. Yeah. Oh, was there a digital clock? I yes. Don't, I, don't I like yes. the production design on that one. Yeah. No, it's funny. I had it on TV, and my uh, my daughter just came home from work. Uh, she's a, a social worker, actually, and, and uh, she goes, "Oh, what's this?" And I, I said, "It's you know the Black Cat." I said, "It's based on a Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, only the title." Yes, <laughs> you know? of and course. Goes, what's it about? And I go, well, "Kind of about like torture and stuff," you know. So. But uh, yeah, I like I like you know I'd, I'd watch Frankenstein over the Black Cat. Yeah, or sure. Frankenstein over the Black Cat any day. You know, so. And the Mummy. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and the Mummy's kind of slow. It is slow. Uh, you know, and uh, you know the oh. I I wa- again I watched that the other night too. It's unsettling <laughs> you know? though. It still packs a wallop. Yeah, 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 and you know the 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 scene where you know he goes for the walk for the first time. You know, and leaves the coffin and stuff, and that guy with the manic laughing and stuff. It's really cool. And the mummy looked like it was a remake of Dracula. The whole story. Mm, well, wasn't didn't uh, uh, what's his name Carl uh, Carl Freund? Freund? Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I uh, was involved in that. Yeah, so. Let's talk a but little yeah. bit more. Go ahead, Rick. I just no, want to talk uh, about Dick Smith a little more because that's a, sure. When you're reading the book, I mean, that's clearly a turning point in your life is you sitting down and saying, "I'm going to write this man a letter." Mm-hmm. By the way, it's sweet the way your parents come into the picture too. Your father's making calls from the payphone. <laughs> <laughs> They're well, really again, going no, out of their way for you. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, again, like I said, my parents you know, were so great and so supportive, but. I, you know, I found Dick's address when I was a kid. I think it was in the seventh grade. We had to do some, look somebody up in Who's Who in America. And I looked up Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Vincent Price, you know. And, <laughs> and I looked up Dick Smith, not thinking he would really be in there. And he was in there, and his address was in there. So I wrote this down on a piece of paper, and I went, oh, my God, I have Dick Smith's address. You know, I should write him, but I was afraid uh, and and shy. I mean, to me, it was like writing a letter to God, you know, and and— I kept it. I had this, this cigar box where I kept all my really special stuff. You know, I don't know where I got a cigar box. My parents didn't smoke cigars. But um, when I was graduating from high school, uh, I was born in upstate New York in, in Binghamton. But my parents left when I was like not even one. Lived in California my whole life. 
didn't know my uh, my grandmother Baker, who still lived in Binghamton, and she was like in her 90s. And they said, we want to go back and we want you to meet your grandmother before she passes. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to go. It's like summer now. I can make, I'm out of school. I can make a bunch of masks. You know? I was really excited. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I've I got to have two weeks where I have to go and, 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 and visit some lady I don't really know other than that she gives me a dollar in my birthday card, which helped me buy rubber. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, then I went, oh yeah, Dick Smith, New York. You know, So I got out that little piece of paper with her, it was his address in Larchmont and and got up the nerve to write him a letter, and I wrote it, and then my mom typed it for me, and uh, I sent it off, not knowing if he'd still live there. I mean, this was many years later, and I sent him, you know, pictures of of things that I had done, co- uh, copies of his makeups. There's a, a Quasimodo that he did that actually Larry Cohen wrote the story for for a way out. It was like a kind of like a Twilight oh, Zone. Yes, wow. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. remember that in Famous Monsters. Yeah, they yeah. showed the makeup. Right, and I mean, I studied that with a magnifying glass, like I said, you know. And so, I mean, I did a copy of that makeup. I also, I, so I showed him. Uh, I had a picture of that, and I also did an oil painting of that makeup, and I had a picture of me with that painting, wearing that makeup. Um, and but you know, the funny thing when we're talking about Larry Cohen, when I did It's Alive, you know, Larry films all of his movies in his house, basically, and and we were filming some of It's Alive in his basement, and in his basement, there's a picture of of that Quasimodo makeup. Uh, with both actors and Larry Cohen. Uh, and I went, when, wh- wh- why is this here? And then he goes, I wrote that. And I went, oh, that's really cool. And I got really excited. <laughs> and I just watched it. It's on YouTube. Uh, Dave Elsie, who I did The Wolfman with, said, hey, guess what's on YouTube? And, and the way out, uh, uh, False Face, is it called? Uh, yeah, that Larry Cohen wrote is, is on. What it's a character. Cool. What now, a wonderful character. Yeah, oh, we, yeah, we had Larry Cohen on the <laughs> podcast. And, I mean, we both love him. But we wondered afterwards or during how much of it he was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell the well, Black Caesar story in the book where, uh-huh. the, where he had these guys running through the airport. Oh, yeah. Jumping, no, on, the, I mean, jumping on the luggage carousels with, uh, with, with guns. With guns and, and blood. Yeah. yeah, I know. I mean, things, you, <laughs> Crowded you, airport. You, you, yeah. Without a yeah, permit. Lost, it was LAX. I mean, this, you know, he, he never got permits for anything he did. I mean, yeah. you know, any, any of the films I did in the 70s, the low budget independent films, where it was really was, you know, no, no permits. You just go out and do it and hope you don't get caught, you know. And, um, yeah, and but, you know, also what Larry did, you know, he would be very economical with the stuff. He... He called me, he would always call me like on the day, you know, it was like, Hey, come to my house today. I'm doing, I need, I need some blood and gut stuff. (laughs) Okay. So I pack up my makeup kit. I go to his house, uh, you know, off of Coldwater Canyon up there. And, um, I walk in and everybody in the house, except for Larry and a couple of the crew members are like black people. And and it's like, what is this? He goes, I'm 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 making a film, you know, with the, with the black people and, and, uh, black Caesar. And it's like, I, you know, I wish you would have mentioned that before. You mentioned the blood and gut stuff, but you didn't, you know, fortunately I had two, you know, African-American colors and, you know, there weren't a lot of colors in those days either, you know, and it was kind of a light skinned, uh, you know, uh, one and a dark one. And, and I could mix those two to, to try to match people, you know, but, but, you know, it was like, you never knew with Larry what, what was going to happen. You, know? you worked on Bone too, the famous Bone, which I know he yeah. shot in his house. Yeah, well, yeah. he shoots everything in his right. house. Yeah. <laughs> Other yeah. one's done in his backyard. <clears throat> yeah, and, and yeah. the thing at the airport, I always, I think, like now the army would be brought in. Oh if yeah, he tried yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and also in Black Caesar, you know, uh, where's what's his name? Fred the Hammer Williams. Yep. Uh, I think uh, is walking through the streets of New York, you know, holding his bloody gut, <laughs> you know, and this was all like, you know. 
with a, a camera, you know, a long lens from across the street, you know, and and again, no permits. He's well, just stealing shots every place. But he had uh, Larry had some great ideas. I think you know, I thought he was a very clever guy. And he did, he did that movie that you know, total schlock, the Wing Serpent. Fun. Yes. Yeah. Q. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no permit on that one either. They were firing weapons down from the top yes, of the Chrysler yes. building. Were they really? Yeah. yeah. Well, he had like... to take out an ad apologizing in the time. Oh. <laughs> and, and it was one of those things where I remember watching that movie thinking, how does a gigantic serpent uh, flying around the city and no one notices it? Right. <laughs> I know. It's, well, Larry, Larry was special. He know. was. We were so yeah, glad. No. We we're so lucky to have him here. Yeah, and, and I'm, I was really hard, sorry to hear of his passing. We were. Recently. We were too. The, the last yeah. thing about Dick Smith too, as I was just to, to get back to it quickly. Not only was it a turning point for you, but that not only did he answer your letter, but he invited you into his home. He chased your parents away, and he said, "Take out a pencil and, and write all this down." And that he was very, very generous oh, about no, was, sharing his his secrets. Oh yeah, he well he had no secrets, you know. He right. It, I mean, I used to feel really special that he did this, but then I found out he does it for everybody. You know, people would be walking down the street and he'd say, "Come on in, let me show you how to." You know, <laughs> you give you this notepad and you can write this stuff down. But you know, it was great. He because when he you know, he was self taught, uh, he started in television, NBC in New York when when NBC started, and he basically didn't. He he did a couple makeups in college for fun. And he kind of learned on the job, you know, and he called up Hollywood people to try to find out how to do some of the stuff. And they said, you know, it's trade secrets. I'm not going to tell you, basically. And, and you know, in those days, you know, I mean, the adhesive we had uh, back in the old days was spirit gum, which is basically like tree sap with some ether in it. And, and um, you know, makeup artists used to take the label off and just put, you know, write special adhesive on it and stuff, you know, to try to keep a trade secret, you know. So Dick... You know, when he figured out his own way of doing things, and it was a better way, I think, and he just thought, I'm going to, I'm not going to be like those guys. I'm going to tell anybody. And he would do, he would, he had a mimeograph machine, if you even remember what those things were. Sure. Kind of like a Xerox type thing. And and, um, he would, whenever you do a, like, for example, when he did The Godfather and he did these bullet hits in different, in a different way, he wrote out elaborate notes on, this is what I did. This is how I use, what materials I used. This is what I would do differently if I was going to do it again. So he knew that people would write him and ask him, you know, how, how did you do that? And he would send him complete, you know, basically like a book, you know, and his monster makeup handbook that he did in connection with famous monsters, I think is one of the greatest makeup books ever, you know using techniques that, you know, stuff that you had, that kids would have in their kitchen, but you could still do a makeup. And he made a blood formula using Kerosurp and food color for this magazine, uh, magazine booklet thing. And it's what everybody uses for blood now. I mean, people, there's so many companies that make artificial blood and it's basically the Dick Smith formula. Well, what a nice thing for you as a kid. How old were you when you, when you went to the house? I was 18. And he took you, and he took you to the set of Little Big Man and you got to watch him work. Yeah, it was actually in when he sent me the first letter. You know, I mean, I, I sent this letter off to him hoping I would get a reply, and I would go to the mailbox every day, even though I knew that it would take a while for a letter to get to New York and come back, but I couldn't help myself. And uh, I vividly remember the day where I opened up the mailbox, and there was an envelope addressed to me from Dick Smith, and it was spongy. I could feel that something spongy was in it, and it, it took me like, you know, maybe five minutes before I had the nerve to open it up, and when I opened it up, he actually had a, a rejected foam casting of that Quasimodo makeup. That wow, nice. Out. 
and a picture of this of little big man, which he did the first test of. And, and right. he said, "I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in Los Angeles. We're going to film it in the, in the Veterans Hospital in Westwood. And if you want to watch me put the makeup on, you're welcome." So I'm, I got to watch him apply that makeup. And and in that, nice. a young Dustin Hoffman is made to look a hundred. 120. 120. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Very impressive makeup job. But how and, nice that you got to meet a hero, and, and and it wasn't disillusioning or disappointing. I mean, quite the opposite. Oh, yeah. No, He I gave mean, of he, himself. He gave of himself a lot. And, and the unfortunate thing with this trip that, like I said, I didn't want to go on uh, to New York, it was the first thing we, I think of the first day is when I went to Dick Smith's house, that I had to stay in New York for two weeks with this notepad full of all this information on how to, how to make better <laughs> stuff. And I just couldn't. Not wait to get home and and, and put this into practice. And the very first thing I did, I did this old man mask, um, which I, again was a lot better than anything I'd done previously to that. You know, so he was he was an amazing, and he changed the art of makeup. I mean, because you know, if there wasn't Dick Smith, there wouldn't be a Rick Baker. You know, and, and that's and, nice uh, of you to say. And I I one time had an extensive makeup job done on me, and I was like feeling like this is so uncomfortable and so long. And that's the modern techniques. And I would always think in terms of like, oh, my God, how did it feel on Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr.? Didn't Karloff right. wear the Jack Pierce's makeup home? Yeah. As much that, as that's he could? They, that's the way the story is that yeah. you read anyways. Yeah. And I believe it, too, because, you know, the makeup took a long time. And, and they also worked ridiculously long days. And it's like, you know, if I have to come back in, in three hours to sit in the makeup chair for another six hours, you know, I might as well just wear this. You know, I did actually, uh, when I was young, I, I, there was a, uh, I, I grew up in a place called Covina, California, which is kind of east of Hollywood, about 40 miles or so. And there was a costume shop nearby. And on Halloween, I, you know, I went to them and I said... I, I can do makeups, you know, and I was trying to make money. So I did a few makeups <laughs> on people for Halloween. And I, I had a couple of days booked and one guy came in on a Friday wanting me to make him up like the Wolfman. But this party, I said, when's your party? And he goes, Saturday. And I went, oh, and, you know, I don't think this is going to, this is a good idea, you know, for you to wear this a whole day. I don't think it's going to look very good. And he goes, this is the only guy I could get in, you know. And I said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll come in tomorrow before your party. Uh, you know, I can probably give you 10 minutes to do a little bit of a touch-up, you know. And he came in the next, after wearing it for a day, and it looked great. And he said he slept with his head between two two books on either side of his head so he wouldn't <laughs> turn over and stuff. And, and it, it, you know, so it can be done, you know. But what were you and made up for, Gilbert? I It was, oh, God, I talked about it on the show. I was doing a pilot for uh, Barry Levinson, Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to be a middle-aged man in it. And and, and and they between the discussions back and forth between makeup and the producers, the makeup wound up looking like uh, the end of Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so and and the thing never aired, but I was uh-huh. it it looked like I was a thousand uh, with yeah. the well, bald it happens head. A lot. And uh, all the appliances of the cheeks and neck, and yeah. and I had, and it was one of those horrible things where they would give the cast call and say, "Okay, uh, cast, you can, uh, you'll be in. We need you here at nine o'clock in the morning." And Gilbert, we need you at three in the morning. Oh yeah, I've done so many two a.m. calls, you know, and. It's, it's, yeah, it's tough. You know, I mean, I used to say, you know what, these actors have been such babies about this, you know, because I would make myself up and go, it's not that bad. But, you know, I usually make myself up once or twice in a row, you know, and when you do 
90 days in a row or, you know, like Jim Carrey did in, in on the Grinch, you know, mm-hmm. that is, that is torturous. I mean, the hours, their hours are hard on me, but they're hard on those guys too. And it's hard on your skin. And, and, but like you said, I mean, the stuff that Karloff would had to endure, I mean, collodion, I don't know if you've ever had that, seen that stuff. It's like this liquid plastic. It's very, uh, the solvents in it, I forget what it is, like MEK or some yeah. and acetone and all this stuff. And to have that put on your face under your, right under your eyes and all that stuff, uh, it, it was torturous. I mean, it, it is, it is a tough thing. And, uh, and I, I've learned now, uh, that, you know, why actors do complain <laughs> about the process. Well, the Carrie stories in the book, did you get to that part of the book? Well, where I, I he, he remember had to hire a he con- told, at one point he told the director to put on, the Grinch outfit. Well, Ron, no, he, he didn't tell him. Ron, Ron Howard thought this might calm Jim down. Yeah. You know, if if I went, I, I'll wear it so I can, you know, live what you're living through. But he did it for one day. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the studio yeah, yeah. just pushing back and saying that you just paint him green? Well, that's what they wanted. I mean, I, uh, I've, I've said this in the book now, so I can say this, but I, you know, part of my, I, I figure part of my job is to... I, I want to do the best work I can possibly do. And a lot of times they don't allow me to do that. And I fight for what I think is right. That comes and across in the book. Yeah. yeah More than I, once. Yeah, I know. Once I read it, I went, God, what an asshole this guy is. But again, it's my work. It's my name on there, you know, and they don't, they won't put on the credit, you know, makeup by Rick Baker, but we didn't let him do it right. We wanted him to paint Jim Carrey green. You know, I mean, I personally kept saying, you know, it's not how the green Jim Carrey stole Christmas. It's how the Grinch stole Christmas. I think people want to see a Grinch, you know. And that was something I think that was interesting in the book. Uh, Jonathan Rinsler, who, who, who wrote it, based on interviews of me and, and research that he did, uh, of articles at the time and, and, and people who worked for me, uh, you know, talked about, uh, uh, he has like reviews of films. I think there was a Roger Ebert film, uh, a review talking about the Grinch and he goes, who, you know, what a mistake. Who the hell wants to see... I, I want to see Jim Carrey. I don't want to see some this green monster, you know? And I went, oh, maybe I was wrong, but I personally think I was right. I oh, you're right. Uh, and he comes and, through it. He comes through the makeup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I knew he would. You, you I mean, I both. was really excited. I was excited that it was Jim because, I mean, he, I I make faces in the mirror all the time and when, when I wear makeups and do stuff, and I'm pretty good at it, you know? And uh, I learned a lot from watching Lon Chaney make faces, you know, but, but Jim Carrey, you know, can make faces like nobody else, you know? So well, I was that, really excited. That movie did lead to you meeting the queen. So it did, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> where does that another yeah. perk? And, and that's something that's crazy about this business, you know. I mean, I've met the Queen of England, you know. I've been to places crazy, you know. I was in Africa, living in a tent, you know, and, and being with gorillas, and and you know, and it, you. It's kind of like time traveling as well. I mean, like when you did the Wolfman, and I'm like in England and in in. In, in late 1800s, you know, when you really feel like you're there, all these people are dressed like that, like, you know, horse and buggies going by. And it's, it's an, it's an amazing business that I complain too much about. You know, I mean, I, I, I feel so blessed that I was able to make my hobby, uh, you know, my profession. And then people give me awards and I get free food and I get to have all these experiences that normal people don't get to do. And I, I should stop complaining. And and as as a fellow monster kid, I mm-hmm. imagine you were putting together the Aurora monster models. One of the biggest regrets in my life is when I got married. I, I was married once before uh, Sylvia, and 
uh, I gave away my Aurora kits. You know, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm getting married. I, I don't, you know, I shouldn't have these anymore. And I've regretted it ever since. And I've since actually traded somebody. I had a, um, a cast of, of Al Lewis as Grandpa Munster. <laughs> uh, Bless your heart. That, yeah, that I dug out of the trash when I was at Universal. Uh, I was in a dumpster. And, and, uh, there was somebody that that, uh, that was talking to me about a, a project who was I knew was a big Monsters fan, and and he had an Aurora model kit in his office. And I went, uh, oh, you know, I love those Aurora kits. And and you know, he said, oh, I have a number of them. And I, I said, I'll, I'll trade you a Grandpa Monster. And so he he gave me a, he, but all of his kits were in the original boxes with the original cellophane on it, you know, and. And it was like, oh man, I wanted to build them, but now I feel kind of guilty because you know they're supposed to be more valuable like this, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna build them still, you know. Yeah, I mean, you should. Yeah, you know, because uh, and I have built a couple of the reissue ones, you know. But I, you know, I had customized mine. I had, you know, I had the the Frankenstein, and I vividly remember the day. I mean, my parents. I grew up very lower middle class. My parents didn't have very much money. I think those kits were a dollar actually. But I, I was in my bedroom one day. With the door closed, and my dad knocks on the door, and, and he walks in with this box with a Jim a James Bond artwork of, of the monster on it, of that Frankenstein kit. And I was, what's this? You know, he goes, I saw this, and I just knew that you, you, I should buy it for you. Oh, nice! Uh, and I, I, now, and I'm sure did, he went without his lunch. Did, you know, he probably didn't. That's sweet. Didn't your dad did. sell them in the hardware store? Uh, no, models? my my dad <laughs> had one. There was a law passed because kids were oh, the glue. snorting glue. Snoot, mm. snoot, uh, sniffing glue. Right. And uh, there was a law passed that in order to buy glue, you'd have to be buying a model with it. That mm-hmm. was the law. And my father had this one model kit of a plane that he sold like about 20 times because uh-huh. they would buy it and toss it out in the garbage uh-huh. just so they could run off with Get the, the glue. glue. Yeah. yeah. Now... They're probably uh, all dead now, too. Yes, I yes. Assume so. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Did you have the Kong? Did you have the, the, the Universal Monsters and the King Kong and the Godzilla? Well, then, oh, I had all of them, and oh. I had the, 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 the ones with the, with the monsters in the cars and, you know, oh, the, the, yeah, Frankenstein's yeah, yeah. Fliver or whatever sure, it was sure. And Mummy, yeah. Mobile. Yeah, some yeah, of The later things. ones glue in the dark, uh, glowed in the dark. And, and Which I didn't like. I, I didn't either. I didn't like, yeah, 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 it was a gimmick. Too, I, a I remember, too far. you know, you you talking about your father giving you that monster model. I still remember part of my childhood is because I was in love with those models. And my mother came home one day, and I guess they were on sale. You got them together. And it was uh, the Bride of Frankenstein and the Witch. Hmm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, she gave me those. It was a double monster. You didn't get the prisoner? Wasn't there a prisoner? Yes, I Starving prisoner. The forgotten prisoner. The forgotten prisoner. Yeah, Rick, yeah. Rick's and eyes are lighting up. And there was the customizer. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That had, you get extra bats and extra rats yes, and things and like that. Yeah. snakes and things. Did you, did you have, laughing did you have the guillotine? <laughs> did you have the guillotine model? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had that one too. Yeah, I, I remember I had a, 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 I've got a magazine called Cracked once. It was kind of like oh, a magazine. Sure. Oh, sure. Yes. Oh, yes. And they had kind of ads in the back, and it was like fake ads, and, and it was like, you know, an iron lung, and one of them was a guillotine. <laughs> and I thought it was real. And I was like, I want to get this, you know, because I had that model. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're talking to a guy who wrote for Crack Magazine, pal. No way. Yes. <laughs> and bad. Wow. And another life. We have to talk wow. about gorillas. 
Yes. Oh, my, my favorite God. bit in the book is when it says Rick entered his gorilla period. <laughs> that was Pica- when a gorilla starts bleeding. <laughs> it was, like, like, was Picasso esque. <laughs> but well, I mean, that came about. You know, I mean, I liked fooling people with makeup. I wanted them to believe what I was doing was real. And I mean, the story I always tell is that you know, a ten-year-old Frankenstein didn't fool anybody. You know, it was like, isn't that cute? Ricky looks like Frankenstein, and it's like, you know, you're supposed to run in terror when you see me, not say, isn't it cute? You know, so. I went through a, uh, fortunately, kind of a short-lived blood and guts period. I mean, when the first time I made a gash, put a gash on my hand and showed my mom, she freaked out. And it was like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. This is a real reaction, you know? So I went through, you know, every kid in the neighborhood doing horrible wounds and injuries on him and going home, <laughs> having to go home and scare the parents. And I was eventually not allowed to play with any of these kids anymore, you know? So I wanted to find something that was real, um, that people would believe that was monstrous. And I had... The misconception about gorillas that Hollywood created, you know, with King Kong and, and every other movie that a gorilla's in, you know, and they, they're actually quite passive, amazing animals. So, I mean, I started studying ape suits, you know, Charlie Gamora was the best mm-hmm. in, in the ape suits and and also, you know, going to the zoo and, and looking at, you know, National Geographics and, and you know. I, I just thought this is something I think I can do this. I think I can do this with my makeup skills and do something that's better than what's been done before. And I set on that mission to do that. And uh, I got over it eventually when I did Gorillas and Mist and had you know my suits intercut with the real animals and nobody knew that they were there. That's so, brilliant. Yeah. Did, did you then, put? I I remember when I was a kid, if it was a low budget comedy where it would take place, say if it was a horror spoof. It always, you knew it was a low budget, like Three Stooges or Bowery right. Boys, that they throw in a, a guy in a gorilla. And it was suit. always one of three guys, right? It was Charlie. Well, <laughs> oh, it was mostly Crash Corrigan. Uh, Those Crash, Corrigan. Crash yes, Corrigan. And yeah. later, yeah. later yeah. Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually, I mean, you know, Crash, uh, there's some neat things about Crash's suit. It's not realistic, you know, but, uh, but he did some neat things with the body and stuff like that, you know, but... You know, George Barrows was the other one that did a lot of stuff. He, they, they used his suit in Conga, and he was in the Beverly Hillbillies, you know. And the first, right. actually, closest thing to a, a whole gorilla suit I did was based on George Barrows' Beverly Hillbillies character because they put him in a pair of overalls. And I didn't have enough money to build a whole suit. But I thought if I have a pair of overalls, then I don't have to have all that fur, you know. So I, I just had, you know, I made a head and some arms and, and some padding and had overalls and and that's actually, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the thing with two heads that you want to talk about. Yeah, so this, yeah, the this, two-headed this gorilla. Good, yeah, this is a good segue because I had a picture of my gorilla suit. Uh, I, I carefully framed it so I ha- held my hands up and so it hid the fact that I had overalls on and didn't really have a chest. And I, I carried that picture in my wallet. And I did this film in South America, which I got actually from working on Bone, uh, Somebody that I made up on Bone was a documentary filmmaker that was going to try to make a feature in, in South America. And he said, you know, uh, do you know anybody that can make a head that looks like somebody that I'm going to fill with meat and have piranhas eat it? And I, said, I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> so so I, I said, I, I can do that. So I ended up doing this film in South America and making this head. And uh, the stunt coordinator on this film, his name was Paul Knuckles. I showed him a picture of my gorilla suit, which again was, you know, a head and some hands. And he became the stunt coordinator on the thing with two heads. And they had to find this gorilla uh, actor to play this movie. And he goes, I know somebody. So they called me in. So I brought that same picture and I actually brought the head with me. 
And they said, well, the problem is we'd start filming in two weeks. And is that enough time for you to make another head? And I went, oh, sure. You know, and they had like, I think $500 or something. So, um, I didn't tell them I really didn't have a suit, you know? <laughs> so I had two weeks and $500 to make a two headed gorilla suit by myself. Uh, and that's why it looks like it does. <laughs> so. And, and, uh, that, that's the one. With Ray Milland and Bruce, no, was was the thing the, with the thing with two heads is the is, uh, is Ray, Ray Milland and, and, and Rosie Greer, right. and right. then the incredible two headed transplant that came first. That, that was, was first, Bruce yeah. Stern, right? Right? Was it Bruce Stern? Yes. I think so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we've had him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, Were you? Oh, right? speaking of another thing, I don't know if you're totally embarrassed about, and if okay. not, you should be. <laughs> Octoman. Oh, oh, Octoman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you got to start somewhere. It was my first film. <laughs> I was a I was a full time student, and I had a few weeks and very little money to make this suit that was designed by already by somebody else, uh, and do the best job I could. I mean, you know, yes, the suit isn't great, but it's a hell of a lot better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> the, the pictures in the book are great. The Octoman pictures in the book. Well, you know, we had to come up with a way to do this. You know, it hadn't been done this way before. You know, we didn't have a big, you know, foam rubber you have to bake in an oven. And sure. it takes like, you know, and we didn't have a, a, a giant oven to put a suit in. And, and I, we figured out a, a process that, uh, you know, Doug Beswick, a friend of mine that I met at Cloakies when I, my very first job, the place that made Gumby and Dave and Goliath. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Doug and I did this film together because Doug actually had a workshop. I, I worked out of my bedroom at my parents' house. and I did Jane Pittman out of my bedroom at my parents' house. I did a lot of things out of there, but the Octoman was just too big to fit in my small little bedroom. you know. So Doug had a shop, and, and, uh, he, and we, we did the suit together in very little time. The movie that was shot in 10 days in Bronson Canyon in, in you know, Griffith Park, and we actually lost a day because of an accident. Um, and... The director Harry Essex, who was one of the writers of the Creature in the Black Lagoon, yes. came from outer space. Which this was basically those two scripts, you know, morphed together with ecology thrown in, you know. And but he would literally tear pages out of the script. We don't need this. We don't need this. And just you know, throw them in the air and watch them blow through you know Bronson Canyon. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a real disaster. But, but don't and you? It, and it was for, for dining out on these stories all these years later, Rick. Don't you want your first movie to be a, a terrible turkey like Octoman? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, you got to start somewhere, right? And, you know, and, and I Ten mean, we days. did the best we could under the circumstances, and that's the thing that people don't realize. You know, I mean, you of course you were given. I mean, I have to do things that never have been done before on a schedule and a budget that I'm usually given. You know, and and I. You know, I used to have to beg people to let me do things. It was like, you know, let me put a scar on this guy. You know, well, you know, we don't have time. You know, let me let me put a mustache on him. You know, I just want to do something. You know, and and after American Werewolf came out, they thought we could do anything. You know, and I, that's like when I got. Uh, I think the film I did right after American Werewolf was Videodrome, David Cronenberg's uh, crazy film. Mm-hmm. And there was stuff in there that I said, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. I don't even know if I can do some of this. If I can't do it, I will suggest alternate things you know and and david was a, a very great collaborator there were a few things i just said I, I can't do it quite like this but i can do this you know and and we did some pretty crazy stuff i mean you know i mean great they, effects on that there was uh that was the movie where they took vhs tapes and inserted them in their bodies yes among other uh, things, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a wild movie. And, and not, I mean, not, we're not talking about sticking him up the rear end. I mean, no, he actually, you know, uh, James Woods, you know, developed this kind of 
vagina-like thing on his abdomen <laughs> that, that he ends up sticking, sticking this gun into. He's like scratching yep. it with his gun and then eventually sinks all the way into his, into his stomach. And then he stands up off the couch with his arm stuck in his stomach and then he pulls his hand out and the, the vagina thing is gone and so is the gun, you know. And we're, you know, Cronenberg writes some really weird shit. And the script was amazing. I mean, the script... I've read a number of Cronenberg scripts, and you can't make the movies, you know. And he even knows that. He goes, "I, I just write it what I would really like to see, but then we then we have to make it real at some point." That's know? fascinating. And that and, was a great script, and, actually. And to brag about my own special effects, I, as a kid, used to make paper mache uh, hand puppets. Mm-hmm. I never and, knew that. Yeah, and and I once did one. What what I did a production of Dracula. With one of my mother's black kerchiefs as a cape, uh-huh. and I broke an ice cream stick in half, and one of them I painted red. Uh-huh. So one character <laughs> goes to Dracula with the unpainted stick, and then uh-huh. it pulls out this stick that has the red paint on it. <laughs> That's clever filmmaking. And, <laughs> was ahead of his time. And, and I did a production of Jekyll and Hyde <laughs> where I put uh, an Alka-Seltzer in uh-huh. a little cap when the potion is bubbling over. He was uh-huh. the William Tuttle of Coney Island. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, all, all of us monster kids did stuff like that, you know, and, and, and you, you kind of had to, you know. I Speaking of papier-mâché, I actually, in the book, towards the end, there's this papier-mâché Nosferatu that I made in my retirement. Um, because when I worked at Dick Smith's house in The Exorcist, he had a, a book, uh, I think it was called Masks and How to Make Them, and there was this guy that wrote this book, I think, in the 40s, that did these papier-mâché masks that I thought were incredible. I couldn't believe they were papier-mâché. And when Dick retired, I, I bought the book from him, and it was something I had on my list of things I want to do before I die, is make a papier-mâché mask. So I, I, one of the first things I did during my retirement was make this papier-mâché Nosferatu, and I first started out as a mask, and then ended up kind of like a three-quarters bust. I'm kind of, kind of torso and a hand. I mean, somebody on my Instagram when I posted it, you know, they they said, "Well, that's not really papier-mâché because you didn't scratch build it." I. I laminated the paper over a sculpture that I did first, you know, is what this guy did in this book. And he goes, that's not really paper mache. Paper mache is when you actually wad a paper and then you put other paper on top of it and you make it completely like that. So it's like, okay, so I made a hand for this uh, Nosferatu scratch built. And then it was like, okay, look, now shut up. You know, kind of a thing. <laughs> it, was, it was actually pretty cool. It was all paper except for the fingernails were like plastic, part of a plastic bottle, plastic water bottle that I cut off, you know. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Do you laugh sometimes, Rick, looking back at these things? You must have a sense of humor. I mean, I'm, uh, specifically the thing with two heads. You're running down a crowded street in a two-headed gorilla suit that's part, that's part bedspread. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, was, it, was, it was bedspread. A fur-covered it was a, yeah. bedspread. Yeah, no, I had to, I, again, I mean, I, I had two weeks, and this was like there weren't makeup supply places anywhere, you know, and I would have to drive all over the place to get the things I needed, and I knew that, 
there wasn't a lot of fake furs available at the time. There was a really shiny black that was really crappy, which my first gorilla suit was made out of. So uh, my dad, you know, when, when he decided he wanted to try to make a living as an artist, used to do these uh, parking lot crafts and art shows. And one was in uh, Melrose uh, Boulevard in La Cienega. And I, I remember walking by a place that had some fake fur bedspread. So I drove there and they had this bedspread that wasn't just jet black. And I thought it was cool. It had these longer black hairs and kind of a lighter hair underneath. And I went, oh, this would be much more real. Turns out that when I put it all together in my two weeks of you know sewing and molding and casting and stuff, uh, it it kind of, when it wrinkled up, all the black hairs would, it looked striped in the end, you know, and, and I was going, oh my God. But but what was cool, that really was guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, they would be, they say, we well, get <laughs> in this van. Yeah, it's like, get in this van. We're going to drive through Hollywood. We're going to find a street that looks good. We're going to let you off on one end of the street. We're going to drive down the street. The cameraman, the cameraman's going to get out, set the camera up. Somebody's going to shout and you run down the street, uh, you know, like a gorilla. And then we'll hop in the van and we'll drive to some other street, you know. And so we did, you know, again, no, no permits, you know, and, <laughs> and, but I also remember doing a scene where I'm in a cage before, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the two-headed transplant thing happens and, and Ray Milan looking at me and going, why the hell would anybody want to do this? And I felt like saying, yeah, what's it feel like to have, you know, you know your film career and end up in a movie called The Thing With Two Heads? <laughs> you know, so. And, and I remember Great. one of the special effects in that movie was just Ray Milan resting his head on Rosie Greer's shoulder. Yeah, well, fortunately, fortunately, Rosie Greer was pretty big, so you could kind of hide behind him. But yeah, there's a lot of shots of them with bandages wrapped around their neck, and he's just standing behind them. And the head, I didn't actually make the fake heads for that. That was um, uh, Charlie Schramm, who was um, uh, worked at MGM under William Tuttle for many years, uh, and Tom Berman made the likeness heads of Rosie Greer and, uh, and Ray Milan. I just made the, the two-headed gorilla. And I I want to brag about myself, but this I did fairly just about three, four years ago. I did a, I made a, a one minute thing on the internet called the scary monster mm-hmm. where I finally decided taking shit around the house and did a transformation scene with ah. filming it with my phone. Uh-huh. And, to, is it uh, on YouTube or something? Yeah, I, I'll send you one. It would be okay. an honor. It would be an honor to send it to you. You've got balls to show that to, yes. to Rick Baker. Yeah, that's like sending... That's that's like uh, uh, sending Mozart something that, you know, I made a, a tune with a, a garbage can. Rick, on the subject of, uh, of gorillas, did you once heckle a professor dressed as a chimp? Yes. I mean, who hasn't? As you do when you're young. I mean, I had, I had a fairly normal childhood, you know. I mean, it was a... Um, I went to a, a junior local junior college to basically to stay out of Vietnam, and uh, I was an art major, though it wasn't really an art school. And I, I wanted to do realistic work. I was doing realistic paintings and realistic sculptures, and was getting in trouble for it. You know, what was really popular at the time were hard edge paintings, where you with masking tape you'd paint one side of the canvas red, and then you'd mask it off and then paint the other side blue. You know, and being the opinionated. Uh, guy that I am, and, and with not having much of a filter, I would say, I'm sorry, but I don't consider this art. You know, I mean, I, I would love for this guy to paint my house because that's a really nice straight line. You know, but 
I want to paint this kind. This is the kind of stuff I want to do. And they'd give me bad grades, grades for doing realistic stuff. And one of the things I did is I did a, a, a full-size gorilla, like a fiberglass with bronze powder in it, gorilla sculpture. And I thought for sure this was going to get picked in this art show. And the, the, uh, the, the school had an art gallery that they, they had this guy come in to curate the show. And he didn't pick my gorilla sculpture, and it kind of pissed me off. So he had a... a a, a meeting where he talked about what he chose and why he chose it. So I decided to go wearing a chimp mask and I just heckled him the whole time. I, 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 I was thinking of it more like performance art, you know. Um, but uh, That's yeah. hilarious. I, you know, I also wore the, my gorilla suit with the overalls to school. Um, <laughs> to my college. There's a rumor uh, you swung from some goalposts. Uh, well, I didn't really swing from goalposts. Oh, okay. Quite to that, but but the uh, there, it was actually I had an anthropology class, and I told the teacher that I had a a gorilla suit. So he, there was a, a room next to the uh, like that had a storage room next to the, my classroom, and he said he was going he wanted to, me to wear the suit to school, and he said I would do. I'm going to talk about gorillas and how they have a certain vocal vocalization, and then he says if there's a a gorilla within a mile and he hears this, they'll come. You know, so I I. You know, wasn't in class that day. I was hiding in the room in my gorilla suit. And when he did the vocalization, I kicked the door in and ran around. And then I spent, <laughs> then I spent the rest of the day just running around in a gorilla suit. And you know, there'd be uh, you know classrooms with you know that sloped up, and you would see have the you know people and the professor's back would be to the door. So I'd walk by in the doorway, and the students would look and point, and then I'd run. So when the professor turned around, there'd be nothing there. And then people would say, no, there was a gorilla in the doorway. And it's like, uh-huh. Was that Jumbo? Was that, was that, that was Jumbo. Jumbo, yes, yes. okay. And, yeah, and, you, yeah, you actually read the book. Oh, yeah. Wow. Cover to cover. Wow. And they, wow. aside from uh, monster makeups, those costumes, gorillas or uh, Planet of the Apes, or they, I had, they had this movie, uh, I think it was Prehistoric Planet, where it was people in dinosaur suits. Uh-huh. And I I constantly heard stories about people would faint in those suits. Yeah, well, Bob Burns talks about, because um, he met Ellis Berman, who did, uh, what was it, an Unknown Island, I think? Was that what yes, it was yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, with these Tyrannosaurus suits, and, and, Bob, and they were that filming in the desert. Yes. Yeah. And Bob... Um, Bob went out and watched, and he said they would just fall over, you know, because it's tough. I mean, I it turns out, it seems like every time I got a gig to wear a gorilla suit, it was like the hottest time of the year, you know, and, and you know, when I did King, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong, played King Kong, it was all blue screen, and it was photochemical uh, processing, Then, so you, you needed a lot of light, which meant a lot of heat, and... The whole crew, and it was during the summer, and it was really hot. And the whole crew's in like shorts and, and no shirts or t-shirts. And I've got a you know a fifty pound suit made out of foam rubber and bear hide that I would put on in the morning, wear the entire day. And uh, except I take it off at lunch, and I, I could literally I could fill up a, a styrofoam cup of water uh, with my sweat from my feet. When at the end of the day, I would take off my feet and dump it out, and all that much sweat, you know. And and I heard like with the Frankenstein movies. Uh, by the middle of the day, when the actors would turn their heads, you could hear sweat splashing around. Oh, yeah. I know. It's tough. And also, things would come off. I mean, in the old days, we, we didn't have the adhesives we have now. We had spirit gum, like I said before, and that would only last for so long. I mean, when I did the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, we, we filmed in Louisiana and Mississippi in the summer. It's really hot and humid. And at the end of the day, the makeup was just 
barely hanging on. And, and it's always when they do the most extreme close up, you know, and I, I'm convinced there's a book somewhere that says, you know, do to, you know, you want to be a director, uh, you know, you do the most extreme close up at the very last shot of the day. But when it's a makeup, it looks the best when it's, you know, fresh out of the makeup trailer, you know, and especially in Louisiana in, in that kind of heat. And, and it's tough. I mean, the problem now is the adhesives are so strong, you know, it was much easier to remove a makeup in the old spirit gum days because, like I said, it was basically falling off. You can't just peel a face off now. It pulls skin off with it. If You, you have to carefully use solvents to remove the adhesive. And, and it's a tedious, long process that's... Not fun for the makeup artist and less fun for the actor. And so. I, I remember when I was doing the extensive makeup, uh, they would like put, you know, the uh, acetone like and start putting, uh, you know, tiny drops here and there and it would burn mm. your skin. Mm-hmm. And then the makeup artist used to say to me, after he put like a ton of acetone on it, he said, okay, now you could do your Adrian Messenger. Because <laughs> there was that movie. With oh, the Kurt John Johnson movie, yeah. Where they yeah. pull the makeup off in a second. Right. Yeah. And I used to do that. But it's it's totally unlike that. Or, or uh, Mission Impossible, where it oh, goes yeah. on and off in a second. Oh, no, that used to piss me off so much, you know, because people would ask me to do that. You know, they go, well, why don't you do, you know, I say it's going to take three hours. They go, why don't you do it like a Mission Impossible where you can just put it on and take it off in a second? You know, and you go, yeah, I mean, I remember one that had, what was his name, uh, Will Gear, I think it was, where it's, uh, like he's like in a medical thing and they melt some rubber gloves in, in, a, in a sterilizer and then he, you know, makes a mask out of that and, you know, put, and then, and, then, and then puts it on and walks out, but they don't explain how he's like, you know, six inches taller and has different color eyes or any of that stuff, you know. And I, I was called about a commercial once where it was like the, for the fireman's fund. And it was like, you don't have to be a fireman to be in the fireman's fund. And then the person peels off, they would look like a fireman. They're supposed to peel that face off. And then they're like an old lady. And then the old lady peels the face off. And then you're a black guy. And then, the old, you know, it's all these different people. And they wanted me to do it all with makeup all on the same person. Wow. Know? And I said, you can't do that. And their head would be four feet wide. You know? <laughs> it's an additive process, you know. And they go, well, they do it on Mission Impossible. And they go, it's fake, you know. It's like the, the two actors. It's like, you know, not the way it really works, you know. But the, the, I wish it did. The I mean, suffering yeah, you I, did in, in King Kong is you could fill a book. I mean, that's, that's one of the most interesting parts because you're talking about wearing the, the pain yes, of, of yes. being locked trapped in a suit or in a Frankenstein suit. I mean, you, you were afraid that you were going to vomit and it was going to come out of the eyes of the oh, suit. And, God. And oh, God. Your yeah, biggest no. fear was getting sick in the suit. But, I mean, people have to – well, we're going to push the book too, but people have to read that section of the book because that's – you're still scarred. You're still, your eyes are still scarred from the contact lenses. Is that true? Yeah. Well, they were hard scleral contacts. You know, they were yeah. rigid, full eye contacts that I, I, you know, they said you were supposed to wear them for 20 minutes and I would wear them. I'd put them in the morning, take them off at lunch. I'd put them back in and wear them until the end of the day. And then I'd drive home from MGM to where I lived in North Hollywood in a complete fog. My eyes were totally fogged over. I'm thankful I didn't get in a horrible accident doing that, you know. But, but yeah, it was, it was tough going. I also got hit by a... Uh, we were on a stage uh, at MGM. It was a really tall stage uh, the, where the um, super tanker was, because uh, it was uh, in the scene where the Jessica falls in the in the super tanker with, with King Kong. But it was with the radio controlled helicopters being hung from the permanents up there, uh, up in the, the permanent beams up in the stage. And I'm, you know, I'm acting in, in my ape suit. I can't really see shit in there, you know. And 
all of a sudden I get hit with something really heavy on my shoulder and like knocks me to the ground. And I, I thought the, the helicopter fell, but it turned out it was a, a two by four that one of the grips put across the two permanent beams up there just temporarily mm-hmm. and left it. And the, the, the vibrations from the helicopters flying around knocked it off. And, and fortunately, I had an ape suit on, but apparently it fractured my collarbone, which I didn't realize at the time, but I, I had issues with it later and I went and looked and the guy said, when did you break your collarbone? And I, I figured that must've been it, you know, but I also really kind of hurt my hand smashing on the, on the gate, you know, and, and in most of that sequence, I mean, you know, the movie, the uh, publicity was about a 40 foot robot, uh, and, uh, but it's in six shots in the movie and not even six seconds of, oh, yeah. of the movie, I think. I was going to say, the and, emotional scarring that you of, of King Kong, <laughs> the psychological scars of King Kong yeah. are and, and, greater than the... Yeah. Before, but I was gonna, what I was going to say, I mean, I, I also I said, you know, I think this is going to be too hard for me to do the entire movie. I want to get another person that's my size that can, we can do like tag team gorilla stuff. Uh, so we got a guy named Bill Shepard who was basically my size and we built a suit for him as well. But uh, John Gillerman says he could tell the difference and he wanted me to do, uh, pretty much did it all. But the, because uh, I hurt my hand pounding on the on the gate, he, uh, Shepard did the pounding on the gate and falling into the, uh, into the pit. And he does some of the climbing of the, of the World Trade Center, but the rest of it is me, other than the six seconds of the 40-foot robot that basically didn't work. Carlo, yeah. And, and uh, you did two uh, Eddie Murphy films where you did a room full of countless characters. One was the clumps, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. nutty professor, mm-hmm. which was an entire family of Eddie Murphy's. And then a barber shop full of Eddie Murphy's and coming to America. Yeah, that that was fun. I mean, uh, coming to America was the first one I did with Eddie, and this was when Eddie was really hot and, and very popular and and uh, very busy and uh, wasn't available for uh, testing. And I like to test the makeups, uh, try them out before the day. And I, I I said, you know, in fact, yesterday I was I made myself. I tested my Halloween makeup on myself yesterday. Uh, I think I still have some remains of it on my face today, but. Um, I said, you know, to make Eddie Murphy an old white Jewish guy, that's a that's a hard makeup job. And, and, <laughs> Didn't he come to you and say, "Make uh, me a Jew"? Make me a Jew. <laughs> Not quite like that. Yeah. No, it was John, John. You know, John Landis. You know, says it was you know payback for all the uh, the uh, the Jewish. Uh, Minstrel. Uh, oh, I guys, see. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, when he said to me, you know, I want, I want to make Eddie. You know, he called. I was in Eng- England with with Sylvia. I forgot what I was doing. I think I was finishing Grillin's the Mist or something. And um, uh, you know, he called me and said, I want to do this movie. Eddie Murphy's going to play a bunch of characters. One of them's an old Jewish man. And I, I went. I said, like, like Sammy Davis Jr. You Jewish? <laughs> no, and, and no, no, a Jew, a real Jew. You know. And, 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 and he was going, you know, don't give him a big nose. You know. And and it's like, well, you know, I'll do what I can. But that was one of the makeups I insisted on testing because I said, you know, it's a really hard makeup. So it's something like fifteen separate pieces that are glued on his face and. Uh, I got him out to do the test. I glued the stuff on. I didn't glue the back of his neck on. I didn't glue his hands on. I wasn't worried about that. And Eddie, you know, was sitting in the makeup chair, again, like I said, looking out of his eyes and seeing this old Jewish man looking back at him. And he just said, Rick, I don't feel that I'm doing your makeup justice. I do a, a stereotype Jewish man. Uh, I want to improvise a scene where I do something more serious. So he he brought one of his, his crew in, you know, and... Um, 
and he improvised this really serious scene about this this old Jewish man who was beaten up by some black guys, and but real serious acting. And I was like, this guy's good, you know. And what I really liked with Eddie, when I you know when I put you know Caucasian colored cheek on him, it's just this weird white patch on his dark skin, you know. And but he would look at it in the mirror and move it around and see what it took to move it. And I went, oh, this is a good sign. He's going to make this makeup work. You know, it, you, uh, a lot of actors, you, as soon as you cover them up with something, it's like, I can't, I can't move. It's like, no, you can move. You just need to practice. You know, it's like, or you give, you know, a little thin veneer of some teeth and it's like, I can't talk with these teeth. And yes, you can, you know, you just need to practice. And, um, you know, Eddie wasn't like that at all. He right away looked at what it did and he had fun with the makeup and he, he liked looking like somebody else, and that's like a makeup artist's dream, you know, to be able to do, have the actor really appreciate what you're doing and have fun with it. And, you know, he said, I want to go to the mall. I want to go to the mall and buy stuff, you know, and I was going, yeah, I just don't think they're going to take your credit card, you know, because it wouldn't have, like, Eddie Murphy's picture on it or, you know, his, his driver's license had his picture and you'd be this old Jewish man, you know. You, you, he, you know what's funny is that when I did the, the makeup, uh, the extensive makeup, the best compliment, one of the best compliments I ever got from the makeup man was saying, you know, you made the makeup come to life. And he said, a lot of actors just wear it as a mask. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it, interesting. No, it, yeah, it's, I mean, you, you have to embrace it and, and work with it, you know, and, and, and Eddie did that, yeah. Now, here's something I want to get straight. Uh, I... For years, and I think with Lon Chaney Sr., there was a lot of bullshit in the, uh, well, one, that he never used the stuntman, which was bullshit. Mm. Uh, but they said that he used a hit a fish hook. Yeah, no, it's not. They also said in Famous Monsters. Yes. When, when he had a blind eye, they said he put collodion in his eye. Yes. And as a kid, I knew that he couldn't do that because it would make you blind if you did. You know, I thought this is horrible that some kid's going to try this, you know. But yeah, it's, you know, I also heard he put poker chips in his cheeks to make his cheeks big. You know, it's like, no, it was, I, I'm assuming it was silk organza glued to the tip of his nose and then pulled up and glued. Because you see all the way up central, all the way up his forehead, there's a kind of a line that goes up that... I think it's glued all the way up to here, you know. But he did he did do some torturous things. I mean, there were hooks on the London After Midnight teeth that hold his mouth in that in that crazy smile. Yeah. I mean, they weren't really hooked. I mean, there were you know pieces of metal that came out. They weren't stuck into his skin, but they held his mouth in a, in a smile like that. And also in London After Midnight, he had these almost like monocle like wires around his eyes that held his eyes eyelids pulled down because I always thought, how do you do that? Because I glued my eyelids down, but when you make that smiley face, you know, your cheeks go up and it makes your eyelids go up. And he actually had these metal pieces right around his eye. When you have a nice clear picture of it, you can see him. Okay. You know, uh, one thing I want to ask you, Rick, um, how did it feel to get your Oscar handed to you by Vincent Price, of uh, all people? Wow. Yeah, Vincent Price and Kim Hunter. <laughs> and Kim know, Hunter, too. Planet of the Apes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I well, first of all, I mean, how did it feel to get an Oscar? I mean, you know, for a monster movie. Sure, you know, I mean, sure. when they, you know, when I got nominated, I couldn't believe it. And I thought for sure, well, there's no way they're going to give it to American Werewolf that's got, you know, gory stuff in it and sex and violence and all this. And uh, though it is a, quite a great film. And, uh, um, but I really didn't expect to win. Uh, I, I mean, I did prepare a speech just in case because I didn't want to make an idiot of myself for this first time ever that they had this category. <laughs> But when, you know, when I saw Vincent Price up there and Kim Hunter, I thought, how cool. 
And he was great. I mean, I talked right away, you know, as soon as I thought, you know, you get the Oscar and you sit back down and, and I didn't realize you had to go through the whole, uh, you know, gauntlet of, uh, uh, I mean, uh, whatever you call it, um, of the press, you know, all the, all the people in the, in the, in the press that interview you and you don't go back to your seat for like an hour, you know, but I got to hang out with Vincent Price and Kim Hunter. So first thing I started asking him about House of Wax, you know, oh, great. Wow. Like to work in House of Wax, you know, and, and what I thought was great is he actually remembered the name of the makeup people because a lot of guys, wow. you know, and the guy who actually did that makeup, George Bow, was a guy that I would buy rubber from. He invented, he was one of the inventors of foam rubber specifically for makeup purposes. And <clears throat> he's, his brother Gordon was the head of uh, Warner Brothers makeup department for many years and he's the guy that got credit but George was the guy that did the makeup and did the pieces and Vincent remembered him and we, we talked about that stuff a lot and that was very cool Are you a fan of those castle movies too? Like The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill and Oh yeah, yeah. you know and The Tingler you know and all that stuff I mean you know, I think anybody, you know, I grew up in front of a TV and those movies were, you know, the, uh, you know, I think we all shared those same movies, you know, and those are the movies that aren't necessarily the, the A-list movies, but they're great. Well, that's what I liked yeah. about the book. I mean, you're talking about Frankenstein, but you're also talking about these real low rent things, like the John Agar yeah. movies. And, and you're I, really a man after our own heart. I remember yeah. in Laura, someone says to Vincent Price, do you know a lot about music? And he goes... I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little about practically everything. <laughs> the, the kids love the Vincent Price impression. Yeah. <laughs> and can I, my favorite part of this interview is I keep looking back at your wife. <laughs> Who has? Who's trying to that, stay awake? Yeah, and and she's got she's got that slightly embarrassed look. <laughs> well, you know, she puts up with me, and, and I got to say, you know, I mean, she she's been very patient with, you know, she she kicks me under the table a lot when I say something that's not appropriate. But I mean, I, I actually had no social skills until I met Sylvia, and, and when we first. She first would take me out to dinner with some friends and stuff, and they would say, you know, yeah. is does Rick know how to talk? You know, because he didn't say anything all night. You know, is he all right? And go, no, that's just the way he is. You know? I, <laughs> the faces she's making, uh, the faces my wife relating. makes. Yeah. Gilbert's wife is pointing from the next booth, and yeah. she's nodding. <laughs> so I think she's relating. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, you know, it's you know, it's changed my life in, in, for the better in so many ways, and I have two amazing daughters that I totally love who who, you know, are into Halloween, you know, yeah. and, and this is my time of year. And this was kind of the drag about the book coming out now because I'm doing some press and I'm going, this cuts into my Halloween prep time. I usually start three months before Halloween uh, preparing, you know, so yeah. uh, so I, I started four months before Halloween this year. So. Well, we have to thank Veronica too, uh, your, your daughter, for setting this up and for reaching out. We'll thank Pat and Oswald too. And there's, there's, uh, yeah. was, we won't tell the story now for time, but we, we, were, we were pursuing Rick and then he found us. <laughs> so we're we're the, and the book. What can we say? My son, when he was like less than one years old, uh -huh. he saw the Wolfman, the original one with Lon uh -huh. Chaney Jr., my uh -huh. favorite, Lon uh -huh. Chaney Jr., uh -huh. and he came out with his shirt open and with a pen. He made a scribble on his chest. And pointed to it because it was supposed to be the sign of the pentagram. The pentagram, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's that's, your kid. That's pretty cool. I, and, and, I rem and one time he was sitting also when he was tiny, he was sitting in a diner with my wife and he got really quiet and he leaned into her and said, 
that man over there looks like Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> <laughs> He's your well, kid. Yes. Sounds like, sounds like a good kid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, your, your parents played such a role uh, in your early success, Rick. How, how much did they get to see? How much of your success did they get to see and, and enjoy? They they got to see a lot actually. I mean, I, I I felt very fortunate for that. My parents got to go to the Oscars a few times. Oh, how nice! Um, yeah, they they've and, and long since passed now. Um, but they got to they got to see me. Uh, you know, my career take off and and you know that know that all the stuff that they put up with. You know, my I mean, my mom's kitchen oven was the first oven I baked foam rubber in. You know, and and uh, the. The, my my little modest house where I grew up in, you know, I, the carpeting had uh, Roma Plastilina, which is this clay that I would use, you know, ground into the carpet, you know, uh, a path from the, my bedroom to the kitchen or to the bathroom, you know, and and they eventually end up building a little like a screened in patio um, where they wanted to sit in the summer to be cool, you know, because we didn't have air conditioning and that became my mold room. I thought, well, that's kind of better to make molds out there than in the kitchen, whose sink I clogged up numerous times. And, you know, they, they, they put up with a lot and they got to see, you know, they got to see my success. My dad used to, my dad used to carry a briefcase full of pictures of my stuff, you know? And when he'd go on an airplane somewhere, he'd just like tap on somebody's shoulders and go, do you want to see what my son does? (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, they, they were proud and they got to see that, you know, they, they, my success. So that was, I was happy about that. We love doing this show. We love the journey. And one of the things in the book is that you get to work on the Mighty Joe Young remake. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking that was the movie you tell you were telling your parents, quick, change the channel. Because on, it's, on the million dollar movie. Yeah, yeah because yeah, it's that yeah. part of Mighty Joe Young. So yeah. I, yeah, I mean you're not you you're 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 not so jaded that that, that stuff isn't lost on you. Well, you but know, you, I mean I thought like I said, after I did Gorillas in the Mist, I, I thought, okay, I can stop now with the gorilla obsession. I've done it. You mm-hmm. know. And and then when Mighty Joe Young came along, it's like, I have to do this. I mean, it's the other giant ape movie, you know. And and I suggested, I said, you know, we have to get Ray Harryhausen, who did the animation, most of the animation in, in the original Mighty Joe Young, stop motion. We've got to give get Ray in it in, in a cameo. So Ray, Ray and Terry Moore are both in a cameo in the movie. And Ray sent me a note uh, praising my Joe and just saying how brilliant he thought oh, he was. Oh, wow. What an and, honor. Oh my God! I mean, I can't believe that I, that Ray Harryhausen even knew who I was, you know. Let alone, you know, praise my stuff. But, but I got. To, I mean, when I was doing the Wolfman, I was in London. I got to visit him numerous times, and it, it was just so cool that somebody like Ray, you know, st- existed still, you know. And and the things that Ray did, you know, by himself in a room in the dark with, you know, a, a stop motion puppet, you know, and, and or seven puppets that he's animating all by himself, you know, on a minuscule budget, you know, and one effects shot in a movie now is more than, you know, a entire Ray Harry has in budget, you know. And I, I said to him, doesn't it kind of piss you off that now people are getting millions of dollars to do you know, shots that you did for hundreds of dollars, you know, but, but he, you know, it's appreciated that stuff was still being done and, and effects are happening. He was one of a kind. And Jason and the Argonauts, like where there's an army of skeletons, yeah, is seven insane yeah. the amount yeah. of... Well, I mean, people, you know, if you don't, if you've never done stop motion, you can't appreciate it. You know, I mean, my wife says, you know, you know, I don't totally understand it like you do, but you know, I, I, I know what you, what you mean when you, you, you appreciate it. So, and, and 
I mean, to move a character a frame at a time, and this is, you know, and when Ray was doing it, now there's, you know, frame capture things where you can actually play it back and watch it as you're doing it, and you could remove frames and do things like that. Ray, you know, you wouldn't see the the uh, sequence until he got the dailies back, and if there was something wrong with it, you start all over again, you know, and and you know, 24 frames a second, you know, 24 different moves for one second of film. Uh, in, in, and when you're doing seven things at once, seven skeletons you're animating, uh, unbelievable. We're going to let you and Sylvia get out of here, Rick. But what, well, I got one question from Especially you. Especially Sylvia. <laughs> we, we, we should, we should buy Sylvia dinner. Wanna, she doesn't yeah. want to be here. <laughs> I have one question for you from a fellow Oscar winner, uh, yeah. Mike, Michael Giacchino, the composer. Uh-huh. wants to know how involved was Rick in choosing angles and lighting to pull off the transformation scene in American Werewolf? Um, John and I storyboarded the whole sequence. Um, John was the one who really chose the angles, though. I mean, it was really... I mean, I... It, first of all, you can't tell John Landis how to do anything. I mean, he's, he, he knows how to do it all. He, he really does know how to do it all. And he planned that sequence out and he said i want to shoot it in post-production after we wrap the movie so that you could spend however many hours it takes to do a makeup and not have an expensive crew standing around waiting you know so that the set was pre-lit so so after we had the wrap party then we started the transformation sequence and you know so i could spend there was one makeup uh, when david stretched out on the floor that i think it was 10 hours of makeup time wow and it, it was probably a half an hour shooting time, you know, and then our day was over basically, you know, but, but yeah, he, John and I storyboarded it and it was planned. And that's what I liked about John's working with John. You know what you're going to do. You know, what's going to happen that day. Not every director's like that, you know, and we filmed in Piccadilly circus, a bus crash, you know, with a werewolf running around all kinds of chaos. And I think it was like two hours we had to do it in to get in and out, you know, clean up the mess. And he did it, you know, and, Clever planning, and and he's a he's a brilliant filmmaker. And may I say, if it wasn't for John Landis, you and Sylvia may not have met. That's true, and I mean my career. I mean, you know, from starting from Schlock, you know, and, I, I met on Into the Night, John's movie. Yeah, and, and Sylvia's back there cursing John Landis. <laughs> <laughs> I could have had a real life instead of living with this freak that has monsters in the house. Like yeah. We got to thank yeah. Rick's team too. Yeah. How, how does Chris say his last name? Chris at Cameron Books. Uh, you got me. <laughs> oh, uh, Chris, Chris Gruner or Chris Griner? Yeah, well, something like that, I think like it's that, Gruner. Yeah. Chris, uh, yeah. thank you to Chris for sending the books. Thank you again for, for Veronica for for, uh, for hooking us up with you. The book is incredible. We're going to just push it to our listeners. It's breathtaking. It is oh, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's a thank visual you. guide to, to spe- special effects filmmaking of the half a century. Great well, photos. You know, the photos and your drawings and your paintings are in there. I mean, it's just and, and you'll a need, feast. you'll need another apartment to fit the book <laughs> Yeah, if you, you have, have a to studio. reinforce your floor in your bookshelves. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the Cameron uh, Cameron uh, Publishing who did it, I thought did a great job, and, and Ian Morris who did the layout did a great job, and, and I'm I'm really pleased with the book. And it's it's a weird thing to see your life in in 17 pounds of book. You know? <laughs> I kind of sort of 760 pages or something. I, I lo- yeah, I, I didn't write it down, but, but what what a career. Yeah. It, it, and if you're interested in movie making, if you're yes. interested, not just special effects movie making, but if you're interested in filmmaking, it's a, it's a must own. Yeah. Well, e- even uh, even I bother to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've done almost 300 of these, Rick. And he, <laughs> oh, man. It's weird that he reads the book. Read. I go yeah. on not knowing how to pronounce the guest's name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a perfect Halloween episode. Oh, my God. God, and, and I can talk to a fellow monster freak 
all day. <laughs> I can never stop. Give, give our love to Dennis and, and Bob, won't you? I will. I will. And thank you, for, you guys for having me on the show and for all the great stuff you said about the book. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a masterwork. We're going we're gonna to push some books. You'll see. And so uh, this, our special Halloween episode of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, our special guest, was the creator of Octoman. <laughs> That's going to say in my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, tell the truth. Are you and Sylvia going to run to YouTube now to see Gilbert's... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Gilbert Short. Yeah. Well, he said he'd send it to me, so oh, I'll take yes, him up and <laughs> Happy Halloween. Thank oh, you, guys. You guys. Thanks so much. My pleasure. You saw me standing Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn 